Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast, presented by FlickeringMyth.com. I'm your host, Court Dunn. Join us as we talk to writers about their work, their process, and what it means to be a writer. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash writer experience. Audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast. Today's guest is Peter Miller. Peter has been a literary and film manager for several decades and is president and CEO of Global Lion Intellectual Property Management Incorporated. He has represented more than 1,500 books, including multiple New York Times bestsellers. Additionally, his company has had multiple movies produced that he either managed, developed, or executive produced, and currently has many film and television projects in development. Three of those films produced have been nominated for Emmy Awards, Goodbye, Miss Fourth of July, A Gift of Love, and Helter Skelter. Additionally, Peter has a number of film and television projects currently in active development with major film studios and production companies, and he's actively pursuing select clients and projects throughout the world. Peter. That is an action-packed bio. We're so thrilled to have you on the show today. It's my pleasure, Court. And I want to thank my associate, Stephanie Hernandez, for finding you. And uh, my other associate, Charlie Sarabian, for help coordinating this. Sometimes, you know, the old saying, I'm like a, a one-armed paper hanger trying to take care of all the people that expect Peter Miller to make them rich and famous. Well, I'm sure there are many people listening who want to know how to get rich and famous through this world that you work in. So I'm really excited to have you on the show and to hear your wisdom. So first question, before we even dive into anything process-wise, is always, where are you in the world? I'm here. I'm there. I'm everywhere. And uh, we have Zoom. I presently live in Pompano Beach, Florida. And my journey here, I've been coming to Florida for... 50 years. I first came here when I was 18 years old, more than 50 years. And um, I um, wound up being invited to live here about 12 years ago by my oldest brother, Robert Miller. There's a clip on uh, YouTube. If you type in um, Jackson Pollock, Peter Miller, I put a homage on YouTube to my late great brother, Robert, who was a world famous art dealer who I love dearly. And he invited me, when I got divorced, he invited me to come down and stay with him. And he was very successful, and he had like nine people working for him. He had cars and cooks and masseuses and a beautiful pool and hot tub and was very generous to me. So I left New York and never believing that I could ever leave New York City, where I had spent approximately 40 years. And the more I got away from New York City, the better it felt. And my passion for New York City, although I love it, uh, and my, my youngest daughter and her mother still live there, I don't frequent New York. As a matter of fact, I'm sad to say I haven't been in New York since last fall, so about a year uh, because of the pandemic. I used to travel about three times a month, and now I'm going on my fourth trip this year. I'm going to Key West on November 20th. And then I'm going to go to Texas for Christmas. But I just don't travel because the pandemic changed. But I love New York. Yay, New York. Yay, Brooklyn. 
And we appreciate that. And Brooklyn misses you. My next question, you mentioned the pandemic. For those writers who are writing right now, maybe struggling with trying to stay inspired, maybe they've got writer's block, they're not just feeling 100% because they're inside every day. Do you have any advice for those writers to stay focused and stay productive? Well, the role of the writer today, it's changed. And what shifted the literary world, uh, which began roughly 20 years ago, the advent of Amazon was a game changer in the world of selling books. The creation of the ebook reader, um, forgive me, I don't know the exact year that the iPad came out, uh, but I'm going to say around 2010, uh, give or take. And there may be three or 400 million iPads in the world. And then the internet. So the combination of those three things created a major paradigm shift in books, the way books were sold, and created an expansion of the dearth of information that's available to every human being on a minute-to-minute basis. And uh, what was that Bruce Springsteen song, In the Bumps and the Mumps with the Adolescent Crumps his way into his hat? Well, we're now technocrats. And we're addicted to technology and addicted to the iPad, the computer, the iPhone, and technology in general. And it's affected people that are readers. So this gets back to writers because, you know, James A. Mishner used to write 800-page novels. You know, he wrote Hawaii, for example, or it was South Pacific. Anyhow, people's attention spans have changed. So what's really changed that's in the big picture of how writers perform, selling new fiction today is more difficult than it's ever been. Because unless you have a major brand or you're a celebrity or you have a blog or a website that's getting an enormous amount of hits, breaking into selling a new novel, if you're a first-time novelist, is more difficult now than it's ever been been. And that's because of the competition, because people tend to gravitate in their acquisition of books to established names. Like Stephen King, anything he writes is going to turn to gold. John Grisham has a built-in audience. And you can name Steve Martini. There are many names that, I mean, I don't even know if Mary Higgins Clark is still alive, but she might be. And Oh, she was on the um, Joan Rivers show with me. It was either her or her daughter. Her daughter was becoming a uh, famous writer. Forgive me for your audience. I was on the Joan Rivers show in 1991. And a client of mine, a dear friend, Jay Bonnet Singer, who's a novelist and nonfiction writer and filmmaker, saw me on that show and contacted me. I just spoke to him yesterday. He's going to send me a photograph that he took of me on the Joan Rivers show in 1991. So the role of the writer in today's market is become tougher because a writer has to think out of the box. He has or she has to create riveting, compelling, thought-provoking fiction. My desire to represent fiction right now is lean more towards literary and not graphic violence. In my career, I've probably sold 90 true crime books. I'm not into murder and mayhem anymore. In this part of my life, 
I don't even watch horror movies. I just, I don't want to take that to sleep with me. I want to meditate before I go to sleep. I want to meditate in the morning when I wake up. And I want to have a peaceful existence. So murder and mayhem are not on my reading and entertainment menu these days. So spirituality, transformation, adventure. Gandhi said, be the change you want to see in the world. Or perhaps it was Gandhi's grandson who said that. So I want to be involved with authors that manifest change in a positive light and also entertain us and educate us and transform us and lead us in a direction that is positive. So the writer's role is very complex because they've got to take your mind out of reality. When I say out of reality, I mean the reality of what, for example, what we've recently gone through for the last five years of literally being tortured by a screaming monster who is the president of the United States. Now, some of your audience may not agree with that, but I'm going to stick with that story. And hopefully we will have a new president that will help steer the world back into peace and happiness and love and celebration and gratitude for the greatest country in the world. So writers, I wrote an article many years ago called Writers Write On. So writers, write on. Love that. Before we get into a little bit more into the process and what you do, I would love to go back in time and hear about your origin story. So did you always want to work as a manager? What was your career trajectory leading up to this point? Well, I was a speech and theater major uh, in, at Monmouth College, which is now Monmouth University. And um, after that experience, I got my first job. I've really never worked for anybody, except I worked in Edison, New Jersey, for a guy by the name of Paul Von Till, who was in the packaging business. And I wound up living outside of Edison, actually in New Brunswick, and going to New York three days a week. And then I wound up moving in with my brother, Robert, who owned a brownstone at 329 West 88th Street, and I had the top floor of the brownstone. And I would go down to Edison two, three days a week and also work in New York at the Cal Industries. And I'll never forget my first day at Cal Industries at 28th Street and Madison Avenue. I was leaving my office around 5.30 and I came out of the front of the building and I saw a body up in the air. A person had just been hit by a taxi and I watched it slam to the pavement. And it was a harrowing experience. I never knew what fear was until I moved to New York City. And as a result of complications in that business, I wound up uh, quitting because there was theft in the warehouse that I was dealing with that I was not responsible for. And I was in the contract packaging business, which meant assembling a lot of parts into a package. And if you had a, a, a line of people uh, working to put all the pieces to the puzzle together and the pieces weren't there, my boss would go nuts because we were paying people to work and they couldn't work. Be that as it may, when I was in college, I was a speech and theater major and one of my uh, colleagues in college wound up moving to New York and wound up renting a room, an apartment in my brother Robert's brownstone. And I attracted other people there. 
For example, my friend Barry Rebo, who I haven't talked to in a while, became one of America's pioneers of videography. He was Bruce Springsteen's photographer forever. And another famous writer, James Cass Rogers, who um, I'll never forget, I sold his first novel with my partner then. It sold 950,000 copies for Avon Books called Daytime Affair. Made a lot of money, but paperback books were inexpensive back in the early 70s, mid 70s, but it still made a lot of money. So before I became a literary agent, I was producing a off-Broadway musical or off-off-Broadway called Olio by a guy by the name of Carl Eukster, who was a composer. And he had an attorney by the name of Kenneth J. Lapatine, who, as I learned, also was a novelist. And he wound up becoming Barbara Streisand's attorney. He was a, a famous entertainment attorney in New York. And his first novel was called The Trials and Tribulations of Aaron Amstead. And not only did we sell the book, but we made a deal with, oh, a famous film director, Mike, who was married to Diane Sawyer. I can't think of his last name, but he was famous. And be that as it may, in producing that off-off-Broadway musical, I didn't listen to the advice of one of the songs in the musical. And it went something like this. No one loves an agent but his mother, his mother. No one loves an agent but his mother. Well, I didn't take the advice of that composer. And I never got that show produced. But during this experience, I met Kenneth Lapatine, who introduced me to a guy by the name of Albert Zuckerman. And Al Zuckerman was a former writing instructor from Yale University, and he was producing a Broadway show, and um, he was not successful. And we wound up talking, and I knew a lot of writers and blah, 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 and we wound up forming a literary agency in the fall of 1972, November of 1972, called Writer's House. And we had an office on 42nd and uh, 8th Avenue, the office was so small that you'd have to go out into the hallway to change your overcoat or take your jacket off. So <laughs> it was really funny. But Al and I graduated. That office was $60 a month. And we got an office on another floor that was substantially bigger, which was $125 a month. And Al and I worked together successfully. We were partners in Writer's House. And Al aced me out of the business. And in a brief period of time, maybe a year and a half or whatever, we had sold maybe 60 or so books. And Al aced me out of the business and said, kid, you need to move to Hollywood. So Al was about 20 years my senior. And I was uh, not happy with the way Al treated me. And I harbored anger for him for a long time. I finally forgave him. But he's the only guy that ever really screwed me in a business deal. And we got divorced. And he gave me $3,750. So back then, in 1972, 73, I worked for almost two years for $3,750. And to support myself, because I didn't get a salary, I was doing bartending and painting and whatever odd jobs uh, I could do to survive. And um, I never looked back. So the Peter Miller Agency became the Peter Miller Agency Incorporated, 
which became PMA Literary and Film Management Incorporated. And then I formed Millennium Lion, my production company. And then I formed 21st Century Lion and was sued by Rupert Murdoch because he claimed I was infringing on a, a multi-billion dollar global conglomerate. And I was opening that corporation in the year 2000 to tie into the millennium or 1999. And he sued me. Uh, I'll never forget. And I wound up getting paid $5,000 to change the name of my company to Millennium Lion. And I had uh, my, my agency was called PMA Literary and Film Management Incorporated. And then that's all evolved into Global Lion Intellectual Property Management because I'm a global lion. I've sold many books around the world. My most famous client for many years was Sir Ken Robinson. Unfortunately, he passed away recently. Very sad. His TED speech has been viewed by maybe 400 million people. Sir Ken Robinson. Uh, I've sold uh, six books for him. Two of them were New York Times bestsellers. He wrote them in collaboration with a, uh, a brilliant author that I still managed and worked with, Lou Aronica, uh, who is a former publisher. So my origin story is I was an actor in college, wound up moving to New York, tried to produce, I did produce an off-Broadway off show in New York called The Ballad of Boris Kay. I forget the names of the actors, but many of the actors in the show became famous. And um, I never looked back. So now I'm still doing the same thing that I started doing in 1972, which is making deals. And I love representing authors, but I also make movie and TV deals. I'm producing a vegan cooking show now uh, called Plant Love, a vegan makeover. I've got a lot of stuff in development, but the pandemic has definitely affected film and television production because it's just not a good time because the studios, the financiers, the distributors, the production companies don't want to be responsible for somebody getting sick on the set. We have a lot of writers on this podcast. Do you like what writers write? Do you like free stuff? Well, Audible is offering a free audiobook download for listeners of the Writer Experience Podcast with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. I recently downloaded James Joyce's Ulysses for my commutes into the city, while our producer Harry, who may or may not exist, has been enjoying J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash writer experience. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash writer experience for your free audiobook. What's your favorite film of all time? It might be a sophisticated classic, a childhood favourite, or an enjoyable pile of trash you just can't help but watch over and over again. The Pick of the Flicks podcast, hosted by me, Tom Beasley, is all about celebrating people's favourite movies in whatever form they take. Each week, I interview a different guest about their chosen favourite, whether I agree with their choice or think they're as mad as one of Tom Hardy's accents. So tune in to Pick of the Flicks every week on the Flickering Myth podcast network and subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Maybe your favourite film will be next. Hi, I'm George. And I'm Sam. And we're from the That's a Classic podcast on the Flicker and Myth Network. We both bring three films each from a certain genre and we battle it out to find out which is the ultimate classic. 
So you can listen to us on Flickr and Myth, iTunes or Spotify. Check out what classic we choose every week. Peter, I would love to dive into what you do. I would love to know more about what it means to be a literary manager. So can you clarify? I'm sure you get this question a lot. and I know the writers listening are familiar with the agents. What is the difference between a literary manager and an agent? Well, a literary manager does all the things a literary agent does, but I reserve the right, and I'm very selective about who and what I represent, particularly if I'm involved in the evolution or the origin story of the intellectual property that I wind up managing, to package myself in some producerial capacity with the production. It's a very difficult thing to do in today's market because I'm not a world-famous film producer, but I have had many movies produced, and three of them were nominated for Emmys, and I've got a bunch more stuff in development. And um, the difference is, and of course, I was probably one of the first people to do this, is literary agents, there's not a license for a literary agent in New York City, but traditionally, they don't produce. In Hollywood, there is a license, And the mandate of that license is literary agents are only allowed to charge a commission. Uh, Although Swifty Lazar, who was a world-famous agent back from the early 50s, uh, he was uh, Elizabeth Taylor's agent. He packaged himself as a producer whenever he could. And then Mike Ovitz kind of mimicked me when he formed APA, when he left Disney, when he got the $94 million payout to leave Disney. He opened APG or something like that, Artist Producers Group. So as a management company, he would also produce. Of course, he lost over $100 million in very short order. And you don't hear the name Mike Ovitz very frequently anymore, but he was one of the original founders of CAA with the four other guys. One of them was Ron Meyer, who just stepped down as the chairman of Universal Pictures for over 20 years. And literary managers are a little bit different. If I can get a producer credit and my client is amenable to that and doesn't feel that there's any conflict and I make sure that there isn't, that's the main difference. I'm also more entrepreneurial. I have helped many, many authors, although I'm not a banker. I have supported some authors because being an author until you hit is not really a lucrative business. And consequently, authors are, you know, either right to live or live to write. So if you write to live, you've got to make money. If you live to write and you have money, then the money is not as important. But many writers just want to write because they want to get rich. But that's not the real motivation for a writer. A writer should write because it's his passion, because he's obsessed with it. Uh, So I have the utmost respect for authors, and I've been breathing life inspiring authors for now 49 years this month. Love that. We mentioned in your bio that you're actively pursuing select clients and projects throughout the world. For those writers who are out there and thinking, how do I get my project into the hands of someone like yourself? Do you have suggestions? I know obviously querying is a big thing. What would you say to those writers who are listening who want to take their book and get it into your hands or someone else's hand? Well, there are many literary agents, but unfortunately, the literary agenting business, which is a great business if you're successful, 
many literary agents are going out of business. And the reason being, if you think about the publishing industry in New York City, there are literally thousands of offices that are empty. The pandemic totally put, you know, like Random House, that great big building, 1745 Broadway between, uh, what is it, 55th and 56th on Broadway. There's probably a handful of people in the building. Random House owns the building, the biggest, excuse me, it's called Penguin Random House, the biggest publishing company in the world. Random House merged with Penguin, which was the second largest publishing company in the world. The business is changing. And I have developed a specific kind of wisdom, which I'll share with your listeners in terms of the psychology of how I make choices about choosing writers. So the first thing I recommend they do is they study me. I have a YouTube channel. I make no excuses about being the eccentric force that I am. I am eclectic. I've got tremendous spirit. My mother, my wonderful mother, said, son, there's a buyer for everything. Well, there's a buyer for all kinds of writing. And in my career, I remember being in my office. The last office I had was on West 21st Street, 45 West 21st Street. And, you know, I always had a staff. At one point, I had nine people working for me, and I never wanted to get a staff infection because it was not fun having nine employees because they always had problems. Like, oh, my grandmother's sick. Oh, can I take three weeks more off? I mean, just one excuse after another. And I just got tired of dealing with it. Medical insurance, blah, blah, blah. At one point in my career, it cost me almost $50,000 a month to wake up. So I said that to one of my friends and they said, Peter, don't wake up. And I said, wait a minute, I want to wake up. So I just kept moving forward. An author needs to study me and understand that I'm unique. I like to play in the big leagues. But playing the big leagues for a first-time novelist is not an easy game, unless what they've written is extraordinary, and unless they have a platform. So any of your readers can follow me. I'd be happy to send any one of them a book I wrote a number of years ago called Author Screenwriter. It's available on Amazon, Author Screenwriter by Peter Miller. But if they email me, I will send them an updated file, but it's still eight or nine years old because I haven't gotten around to rewriting it. I want to write a couple more books, just haven't had the time. And they've got to really think out of the box. So one of the things that I look at in deciding whether or not I want to work with a client is kind of a psychoanalysis. And I learned this from a client of mine, Dr. Paul Dobransky, who's a psychiatrist. It's how the human brain works. So if you divide the human brain into three parts, you will see that the small brain is the reptilian brain, the big brain is the uh, cortex brain, and the smaller brain is the limbic brain. Well, the cortex brain is about integrity and trust, and the limbic brain is about friendship, and the reptilian brain is about passion. So Dr. Dobransky wrote a book called The Secret Psychology of How We Fall in Love, which was published many years ago by um, Viking Penguin. We just sold the Polish rights. 
Paul is a relationship wizard. And the book basically divided the human brain into these three parts, but each part had a cylinder, three cylinders. So it was basically like a nine-cylinder engine. So basically, you have to trust somebody, you have to be friendly with somebody, and you have to be passionate about them. So let's say you're in a relationship and you are friendly with somebody, you're passionate about them, but if you can't trust them, you got to get out of that relationship. So I look for trust. So if I'm on the phone with an author and they bullshit me or they lie to me or make up facts or whatever, I can't work with somebody that doesn't tell the truth. So that's number one. Number two, and we will send all of your readers that find a way to contact me an article that I wrote a couple, two years ago called Promote, 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 which is about why all authors today have to have a platform. And that platform and the ability to expand that goes beyond Facebook and Instagram and Pinterest. Blogging is the most successful way you can get your name out there and build a fan base, which is very necessary. And website traffic is important, but podcasts are important. Like this is a podcast. I'm an advocate of podcasts as long as it does something to help my clients. The moth.org. Uh, really extraordinary stories on there. So any way that an author can build their brand in terms of social media, and that would also include getting a famous person or people to write an introduction, preface, or forward or prologue to their book, and also getting quotes, preferably from celebrities or famous established authors. When Clive Cussler was alive, he gave several of my clients quotes. He always gave a first-time novelist a quote. So that means that the author has to go out and get people to endorse their book. It used to be, and remember, I've been doing this a long time, and I'm still passionate about it. It used to be the publisher did all this work. They did all the marketing and promotion. Now they expect the author to do it. So the brand, and then the last part, is I have a trailer on uh, YouTube. My book was originally called Author Screenwriter, still is, but I produced a movie called Author Screenwriter. And I did a trailer for the movie that I posted on YouTube. And in that trailer, which I think is seven and a half minutes long or whatever, is a story that I tell that I learned in the landmark forum which is about how to take yourself into your future, i.e. have an out-of-body experience and take yourself three years into the future and look back at your past. So if you look back at your past from a three-year perspective from now and you see good reviews, you see a New York Times bestseller, you see a movie that's going into production, you see happiness and joy, then that's the path you want to travel. But if you see yourself sitting in a room with nine unpublished manuscripts and no bites, you may want to think about what you're writing or whether or not this is the right path for you to travel in your life. Because the role of a writer is a very lonely business. That's why literary managers are necessary because people who want to write and get published need the voice of authority. Somebody who's been around, for example, I'd like to think of myself 
as the Jimi Hendrix song. Are you experienced? I am. Okay. So this is what I've done in my career. And unfortunately, when a writer says, oh, how much money am I going to make? And they haven't even finished the book yet. I know right off the bat, they're not the right person for me to deal with because they're not dealing with the hardcore passion that's necessary about the art and craft of writing. I just want to ask, there's a bonus question, which we usually call a series of seemingly random questions, but we just have one this time. And it is, looking back at your entire career, which you just mentioned, you have a lot of experience. If you had to choose one piece of advice for learning from your career, your entire career, that you'd like to pass along to the writers who are listening, what's the one thing you would say? Pull out a crystal ball. Look into the crystal ball and envision your future. But be optimistic. Be realistic. Because the journey, the path, the career of the writer is a very lonely business. But the rewards are extraordinary. So I would recommend you be very careful about what you write about. I would be careful about approaching literary representatives until you're ready. I mean, if you knew the garbage that was submitted to us, you wouldn't believe it. People, they send you a query letter, and there's misspelled words all over it, run-on sentences, incohesive, and they're out there trying to get somebody to represent them. Don't come to me until you're ready. I've made a lot of people's dreams come true. I get great, great satisfaction out of doing that. I'm also about making money. When I represented Nancy Taylor Rosenberg, I met her through the mail. And the first deal I made for her is I got her a $3 million advance on a four-book deal. Each book was 100,000 words. So if you multiply four times 100,000, you have 400,000. And if you divide 400000 into $3 million advance, she was getting seven fifty dollars a word. And I was getting a 15% commission. So the advice is to thy own self be true. You've got to write because you're really passionate and you can't do anything else because writers are artists. And the big mistake that a lot of writers make is they don't have enough experience to write. They have a vivid imagination. And I've heard stories. I mean, some writers have never been any place and have created extraordinary works of art because they had a tremendous command of the English language or whatever language it is, like Dostoevsky or Leo Tolstoy or whatever. But they had the ability to write great prose. So I say to all your fans, writers write on, don't look back, think big, get out there and be successful. And I wish you luck. And if at some point our paths cross and I can do something to help you, I could be available. I'm also available as a consultant on a very selective basis. And if anybody wants to know anything about me, I don't know whether you post your reference to the people that you have on your show via email or whatever, but I will ask Stephanie Hernandez, who arranged this for me with you, to send you a link. We have a Global Lion Insider that goes out once a week. I recommend they Google Peter Miller Literary Lion or a Literary Lion's Tale. And my YouTube channel is Peter Miller hyphen the Literary Lion. I'm not lying about that lion. And the reason I'm so involved with the lion imagery is that 
my home where I'm sitting right now, I have over 450 lions. My mother's maiden name was Lyons, L-Y-O-N-S. I was born on August 15th. I'm a quintuple Leo. And because of my globe trotting and being a spirit in the publishing world for decades now, I gave myself the handle of a literary lion. And when I renamed my company, when I moved to Florida some 10 or so years ago, I named it Global Lion Intellectual Property Management Incorporated because I am a global lion. So I'm going to give you and your audience a roar, Court. <laughs> Did not see that coming, Peter. But I love it. That being said, my last question, did you have fun today on the show with us? I had a ball, man. Forgive me for being so aggressive, but I don't suffer from low self-esteem. I'm not... <laughs> I'm grateful to love the life that I live. Sir Ken Robinson's first book that I sold for him was called The Element. Sold it in 34 countries. And if you have an epiphany in your brain and it reoccurs and haunts you with, oh, I've got to do this. Oh, I want to do this. Oh, I want to create this. And then you wind up doing it and you achieve the original epiphany that triggered your action, you wind up in your element. So I wish all the writers that are in your audience the wonderful reward of winding up in their element. Love that. Thank you, Peter. It has been an honor and a lot of fun. We even got a lion's roar, which is a first for the podcast. So thank you so much. We really appreciate your time. My pleasure, Court. Thank you, Stephanie, for hooking this up. I'm grateful. And thanks to our listeners. We hope to see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to The Writer Experience. If you enjoyed the episode today, please leave a rating, a review, and a comment on iTunes. You can also check us out on Instagram at Writer Experience and Twitter and Facebook at Writer EXP. The Writer Experience is a Samurai Dinosaur production. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. Music by Kevin McLeod.